History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 98, Wars in the West. Last time, we covered the rise in military activity from Achaemenid Bactria, as seen in the Khalili Collection Adab Archive. The satrap Akva Mazda and his subordinate Bhagavant were preparing for conflict in the northeast, but daily life in their satrapy continued as normal. We left King Artaxerxes III himself focused on the west in episode 96. He had forced the western satraps to abandon their private armies, defeated Artabazus of Hellespontine Phrygia when he rebelled against these new dictates, and threatened to take action against Athens for violations of the king's peace, forcing the Greeks to abandon their social war. This was all a prelude to the new king's real goal, which was just a continuation of the Persian Empire's prime directive throughout his father's reign, defeat and reconquer Egypt. But we should know the pattern by now. You can't just invade Egypt. First, you have to deal with some other revolt in some other part of the empire and get frustrated by all the distractions. Defeating Artabazus and securing Anatolia was very much a part of the preparations for the next Egyptian campaign. But a renewed Caducian rebellion in the Eastern Caucasus was not and this required Artaxerxes' personal attention before Egypt. Artaxerxes III led an army north through Parsa and Media and into the mountains to remind the local tribes who was in charge. 
It was a fairly minor thing, and the king's personal involvement was probably more a result of Artaxerxes needing to gather and prepare a large army anyway, and an opportunity to endear himself with the troops before facing Egypt. However, the rebellion was actually defeated in a unique and spectacular fashion. A Persian noble named Artashiata Kadamawan, literally Artashiata the Easterner, or Kodamanos as he was known to the Greeks, traveled with the great king. He was a distant royal cousin, a great-grandson of Darius II on his father's side, and grandson of Artaxerxes II through his mother. Artashiata challenged a Caducian leader to single combat in view of both armies, and he won this duel. For the first time, we actually see this accumulated tactic of using single combat to metaphorically decapitate the rebellion work in the Empire's favor. As a reward for his accomplishments, Artaxerxes named Artashiata the new satrap of Armenia, apparently displacing or replacing whatever probably Hidarnid branch family was ruling at the time. Meanwhile, just a bit further west, Caria was busy expanding the Achaemenid Empire on its own terms. I checked in with the Carians in episode 97, covering the reign of Satrap and vassal king Mausolus as he dealt with minor uprisings in Greek cities along his coastline. When Mausolus passed, his territory went to his sister-wife Artemisia II, queen of Caria and the first woman to hold the position of Satrap, at least so far as we know. The Roman military historian Polyinus records that she captured the Greco-Carian city of Latmus by having her army hide in the neighboring forest while she officiated a strange and unexpected religious ceremony at the tree line. The Latmians were intrigued by the ceremony and opened their gates so that some of their guards could go out and see what all the fuss was about. When the gates opened, Artemisia's forces charged in and breached the city. It's likely that this event, if it happened that way at all, happened while Mausolus was still alive, since he is also credited with capturing Latmus in a surprise attack. Artemisia II's real claim to fame is her capture of Rhodes. Under the terms of the king's peace, the large Greek island off the Carian coast was officially independent a fact that had been weaponized against Athens during the recent social war. However, in 353, the misogynist Rhodian oligarchs were upset by the power of a woman ruler in Caria. They criticized Artemisia and doubted her ability to govern. To soothe their concerns, the Carian queen invited the oligarchs and their entourage to meet with her in Halicarnassus. She made a big show of sending away her fleet to prove that there was no threat. What the Rhodians did not know is that Mausolus had constructed a secret harbor several miles south of the city before he died. When the Rhodians arrived, they were pleased to see the Halicarnassian harbor was free of warships and disembarked, entering Artemisia's capital 
full of confidence that they could gain favorable treatment from this silly little queen. Once they were out of the port itself, Artemisia ordered her men to seize and execute the Rhodian leaders, while her fleet rushed up from the hidden cove and captured or sank all of the Rhodian ships. From there, the queen boarded a ship herself and sailed to Rhodes, where her forces briefly besieged the island before capturing it and incorporating the Rhodians as Carrion subjects. Beyond that, and the stories of her mourning her dead husband brother, Artemisia's reign was short-lived. She died in 351, passing the Carrion province to her younger brother, the third son of old satrap Hecatomnus, named Idrius. He became the new king and satrap of Caria, but maintained many of his siblings' policies. With the northwest firmly settled in the hands of Artaxerxes III's chosen governors, he could finally move on to Egypt itself. An army was gathered, including soldiers drawn from all across the Western Empire and a large cohort of Greek mercenaries. We left Egypt in episode 91. The major offensive against the Persians in Phoenicia had failed when Pharaoh Jedhor died and the Nile was plunged into a brief but chaotic civil war, forcing much of their invasion force to withdraw. Noctorheb was the victor in the Egyptian power struggle, and was now dealing with getting his country back to a stable status quo. The early years of his reign as pharaoh were focused on domestic affairs, rebuilding the economy and bolstering his reputation with a series of building projects at temples all over the country, and keeping Egyptian grain and gold out of foreign interventions for a change. But... In 351, he had to do something. Artaxerxes III personally led his army to Egypt, and the new pharaoh had to prepare for his first big challenge after taking the throne. He bolstered Egypt's defenses with, what else? Greek mercenaries. As a sign of just how much the status quo in Greece has changed in the last half-century of narrative, Noctorheb's two Greek generals at this time were a Spartan and an Athenian. Unfortunately, though, even with Greek involvement on both sides of this conflict, all of our ancient sources at this point are much more concerned with events in Greece than anywhere else. In their defense events in Greece were far, far, far more significant in the long run by 351 than this Persian invasion. At this point in the timeline, we still have the regular smattering of Athenian rhetoricians and philosophers making references to Persian affairs, but the primary historical narratives are down to just Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, which we've been using since day one, and Justin's epitome of Pompeius Trogus. Trogus was a 1st century BCE Romanized Gaul who wrote a detailed but famously dry text called the Philippic Histories and the Origins of the Whole World and the Places of the Earth. His focus was on the history of Macedon and its successor states, and the gist of the text is only preserved through Justin, 
a 4th century CE Roman who summarized Trogus's dull monstrosity of a world history. As a result, he really only comes up in a Caymanid history when we are lacking for other sources. For example, even the satraps of Lydia get lost in the shuffle. Last we heard, Autophrodates was the satrap of Lydia. In the next major events to play out in Anatolia, the satrap will also be Autophrodates. Many authors, including accomplished modern historians, tend to assume these were the same man. But Diodorus identifies the Lydian satrap as Rosakis in the 340s. If we actually take a step back and consider our options, it is highly unlikely that the original Autophrodates lived into the 330s BCE. He'd have been 85 years old at least. In all likelihood, the Autophrodates we know died, either in this Egyptian campaign of 351 or shortly before. Rosikis was probably his son, and the later Autophrodates his grandson, which fits the typical Iranian naming convention. However, none of our sources actually explain these relationships. Even in the context of this poorly documented period, neither historian provides much information about the invasion of 351. Artaxerxes invaded Egypt and fought bitterly against Nahtorheb for a year. To his credit, the descriptions we do get make it sound like Artaxerxes III pushed deeper into the Nile Delta than any of the Persian attempts at reconquest under his father. Nahtorheb dealt a crushing defeat to the Persians in either late 351 or early 350, forcing Artaxerxes to withdraw. This was the straw that broke many of the Persian vassals' backs in the west. A Greek oracle given to Philip II of Macedon described the empire as moribund and failing, while forces within the empire began to rise in rebellion. Strangely, Diodorus describes this situation as, quote, Artaxerxes, known as Ochus, himself unwarlike, remained inactive and though he sent out armies and generals many times, failed in his attempts because of the cowardice and inexperience of the leaders. This is heavily contradicted by other sources like Justin and Plutarch's descriptions of Artaxerxes III, as well as by the king's actual actions, and the inexperience of the generals bit is just plain untrue. Everybody involved here had been at war for about 20 years straight. However, it's fairly accurate as a description of Artaxerxes II, which makes me think that Diodorus is falling into the easy trap of confusingly named Persian kings. Regardless, the failure in Egypt in 350 shattered Western confidence in the new king of kings, and Nahtorheb seized on this to provide funds and instigation for a renewed series of rebellions in the Persian West. By 347, the Athenian orator Isocrates described the situation by saying, Furthermore, 
Cyprus and Phoenicia and Cilicia and that region from which the barbarians used to recruit their fleet belonged to the king at that time, but now they have either revolted from him or are so involved in war and its attendant ills that none of these peoples are of any use to him. The region from which the barbarians used to recruit their fleet seemingly refers to the western coast of Anatolia and or the coast of Palestine, which was increasingly seen as distinct from its Phoenician and Canaanite roots. The revolts broke out shortly after Artaxerxes returned to the imperial heartland in 350 or 349, leaving the loyal satraps of the west to deal with the uprising. It began with the Phoenician Tripolis. I've mentioned this before, but to recap, the Phoenician cities of Sidon, Tyre, and Arados formed a mutual defense and trade coalition, constructing a new city center between them to act as a hub for the alliance. Over time, this hub evolved into the city of Tripoli in modern Lebanon. After the defeat in Egypt, Tenes, the king of Sidon, convinced his fellow Phoenicians to revolt with Egyptian support. Sidon itself was the center of Persian administration in Phoenicia, with many nobles and generals occupying the city under the great king's auspices, and a paradise garden constructed for their enjoyment outside the walls. Tene struck first, capturing the Persians within his territory and attacking the paradise. The garden complex had become a sort of storehouse in recent years, used to stockpile supplies and garrison cavalry for a second attempt at Egypt. The Phoenicians looted what they could and burned the rest. Artaxerxes' subordinates sprung into action and tried to deal with the rebellion, but Egyptian aid to the rebels frustrated their efforts for years. Balesis, satrap of Assyria, and Mazaios, the recently appointed satrap of Cilicia, were tasked with putting down the rebellion. However, they were unable to capture any rebel cities. We don't hear much about Tyr, Arados, or even the Tripolis, but we know Sidon bitterly resisted all attempts to retake Phoenicia. This was aided by the outbreak of hostilities at sea. Nine of the ten Cypriot vassal kings staged a revolt as well. This rebellion was sparked by Pinitagoras of Cypriot Salome. Pinitagoras was a great-grandson of our old friend Evagoras, and nephew of Evagoras II, the reigning king of Salome in 351. Evagoras II had learned from his family's mistakes and pursued a strong pro-Achaemenid policy but his nephew staged a coup dethroning Evagoras II and declaring independence. Artaxerxes was still in Babylon, regaining his strength, and tasked Idrius, the newly installed king of Caria, with dealing with Cyprus. Evagoras joined the Carians after being ousted from power, and they hired the Athenian mercenary Phocion as one of Idrius's chief commanders, for the invasion. They set up a fortified encampment outside of Salome as quickly as possible, 
and besieged the city by land and sea. The same tactic Idrius's father had used against the first Evagoras. Thanks to swift action and convenient timing that allowed the Persian army to raid Cypriot fields, they took Salome with relative ease, and the Persian ranks were soon swelled by mercenaries from all over who heard that there was a lot of plunder to be had on Cyprus. They made relatively short work of the remaining eight rebels with these reinforcements. To the surprise of everyone, though, Evagoras II was not allowed to return to his position. Instead, Artaxerxes III appointed Pinitagoras to remain king, on the condition that he support the Persian Empire unconditionally. This was actually a brilliant move. Pinitagoras's rebellion was due in large part to seize personal power through a popular coup. Pinitagoras was popular with his own people, and a compliant Cypriot populace was more conducive to imperial stability. This also had the added bonus of undoing the unfavorable treaty that Artaxerxes II was forced to sign with Evagoras I, which made Salome a functionally independent allied kingdom. Presumably sparked by Egyptian gold, Idrius also found himself involved in other Aegean conflicts. We're left wanting for details, of course, but he followed his Carian predecessor's policy of expanding their territory by capturing Greek city-states that interfered or rebelled near their borders. Sometime during his reign, Idrius seized control of the islands of Kos and Chios, giving him personal control over most of the major trade centers in the eastern Aegean. Despite his many accomplishments, Idrius's rule proved fairly short. He died of some disease, probably something contracted in his campaigns, by 344. During his lifetime, his capital at Halicarnassus was home to extensive building projects, largely overseen by his sister-wife Ada. She served as a sort of co-ruler throughout her brother's time on the throne, apparently managing Carian domestic politics while Idrius was off fighting rebels. Upon his death, Queen Ada of Caria became the new vassal and satrap of the great king. But that's jumping ahead just a bit too far for now. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. 
Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rewind back to 346 or 347. Over in Phoenicia, Mazaios and Belesis were still struggling with the rebels. But Artaxerxes III had gathered a royal army back in Babylon and set out to the west, first to clean up this rebellion and then to carry their momentum straight into Egypt. According to Diodorus, the great king led 300,000 infantry and 30,000 cavalry. These numbers are, as usual, nonsense. But about a third of that would make sense for an invasion of Egypt, and more or less lines up with Diodorus's description of the Egyptian army as outnumbered but confident. As they approached the coast, this army joined Belesis and Mazaios' forces, as well as the Achaemenid navy at full strength, 300 triremes. The first order of business was besieging Sidon and its Phoenician co-rebels. They actually held out for several more months with Artaxerxes at their door, but they were never going to withstand the full force of a royal invasion. Artaxerxes just seems to have been taking his time. There was no rush. Sidon couldn't hold up to a siege on this scale for very long, and Artaxerxes still wanted time to recruit more men and ships. While they waited outside of Sidon, the Persians enlisted a further 500 merchant and cargo ships to aid with their plans. The great king also sent letters off to the major powers of Greece, asking for an official alliance and soldiers to join the army. Sparta and Macedon refused to send anybody, but acknowledged their existing relationships and treaties that made them friends of the king, such as the king's peace. Athens had already sent troops to aid Idrius, and didn't feel compelled to send more for Egypt. Thebes sent a thousand to join Artaxerxes, and Argos sent three thousand. They were joined by six thousand recruits from Persia's Greek subjects in Anatolia, However, none of these Greek powers were willing to take responsibility for their subjects or citizens who had already joined Persia's enemies as mercenaries. Just before Artaxerxes arrived, Sidon was reinforced by 4,000 Greeks of its own, paid for by Egypt, under the command of Mentor of Rhodes. Which is a bit confusing, since we last heard from Mentor 
when he surrendered to Artaxerxes following Artabazus' revolt and joined Team Persia. It's possible that Diodorus was just recounting two different stories of how Mentor came into Persian service, or that Mentor was a free agent for a few years between Egyptian campaigns, and went into Egyptian service. Given the events that followed, it's also possible that Mentor was actually in Sidon as a double agent, though that would make it a bit strange that the city held out for so long. King Tenes of Sidon opened negotiations with Artaxerxes, sending an emissary out to the Persian camp. This negotiator offered to turn against his master and aid Artaxerxes with inside knowledge of the Egyptian defenses, on the condition that the king personally give him his right hand. Artaxerxes was outraged and nearly had the negotiator executed, only to reconsider at the last moment and, quote, give him his right hand. What exactly this idiom is supposed to mean, we don't know but it sounds like just a handshake. When the negotiator returned, he met with Tenes in secret. Tenes then decided to give up the fight and informed Mentor that he would surrender. Mentor then went out against Tenes' wishes and told the other Phoenician leaders, prompting a minor revolt within the revolt. Artaxerxes was actually frustrated by this surrender. He wanted to take the city and sack it as an example to other rebels. So Mentor and his mercenaries went out with Tenes when he delivered himself to the Persians, and Mentor once again pledged himself to Artaxerxes' service. Then the great king had Tenes killed and sacked the city anyway, even as the Phoenicians had burned their own ships to force the population to stand and fight. A Babylonian record from 345 discusses how prisoners from Sidon were deported to Babylon, including women who were taken to the palace of the king, apparently either to become slaves or servants, or to be put on display as part of a future concubine show. With Sidon taken, many of the other cities in Phoenicia and Palestine fell into line but a few holdouts still had to be taken by force. Some very late sources, like the 3rd century CE geographer Gaius Julius Solinus, suggest that Judea may have held out. This could also serve as an alternate frame of reference for the events described by Josephus, with the high priest Yohanan killing his brother Yeshua in the Jerusalem temple. The chronology and details of various references to a Jewish deportation by one of the Achaemenid Artaxerxes are confused and difficult to interpret. But it does seem clear that something happened around this time, likely as a result of hostilities with Egypt. Salinas specifically says that the Jews were deported to Hyrcania. Once the rebels were all put to order, Artaxerxes III took his time and got prepared, but in 343 BCE, he decided they were ready, and a new invasion of Egypt commenced. It was slow going through the Sinai, with a force of about 40,000 soldiers or more, 
especially in the marshes just east of Pelusium. But before long, the Persian host reached the Egyptian border fortress, and it was off to the races. Pharaoh Nakhtorheb had almost seven years to prepare, and Pelusium was heavily fortified. 5,000 mercenaries under the command of Philophron of Sparta formed Egypt's first line of defense as the permanent city garrison. According to Diodorus, the rivalry between Sparta and Thebes prompted poor decision-making on both sides. Persia's Theban mercenaries charged in haphazardly and unsupported, getting caught up in the ditches and earthworks outside the city. But the Spartan defenders were so eager to fight some Thebans that they sallied out from behind their walls and locked with the Theban phalanx in a grueling pitched battle that lasted all day and into the night, with both sides mutually retreating only because it was getting dark. The next morning, Artaxerxes took more time to actually organize his army for an intentional assault on the Egyptian defenses. The full Persian army was split into three divisions, each led by one of the Greek generals with a Persian officer to coordinate the overall plan. The first was led by Lacrates of Thebes and Satrap Rosakes of Lydia, presumably to keep the Thebans from losing it. As Satrap of Lydia, Rosakes also commanded the Ionians and other Anatolian Greeks, making this the most Greek of the three armies. The second appears to have been the smallest contingent, but also the most elite. Or at least the group intended to spearhead the assault. It was led by a Persian called Aristoxenes, one of Artaxerxes III's personal friends and advisors. He commanded 5,000 elite Persian soldiers, presumably pulled from the royal bodyguard, more famously known as the Immortals. His Greek compatriot was Nicostratus of Argos, who must have been a sight to see. According to Diodorus, Nicostratus led from the front line, dressed in a lion skin and wielding a heavy wooden club in emulation of the mythical hero god Hercules. How that worked in a normal phalanx, I have no idea, but I have to imagine this crazy guy in mythological cosplay swinging around a tree branch probably freaked out his opponents. The final contingent was tasked with amphibious operations. The Greek commander was our old friend Mentor of Rhodes, commanding 80 triremes and his own mercenary company, that had previously been stationed at Sidon. Mentor was both an accomplished commander and a wildcard, so he was paired with a commander that Artaxerxes trusted implicitly. His favorite eunuch advisor and renowned general in his own right, named Bagoas, who commanded the bulk of the imperial recruits drawn from across the western and central empire. Artaxerxes himself elected to command from the rear, taking up a position in the royal chariot where he could observe the battle and coordinate with his commanders, but also one where he had command of the reserve troops and could charge in to save his advanced force if need be. 
Diodorus plays this as typical Eastern cowardice, but it was a sound strategy. Artaxerxes was already a war hero with nothing to prove. This role gave him greater control over his army and the opportunity for personal heroism without immediately placing himself in danger. Once everyone was in position, the Persians launched their assault on Pelusium in earnest. Nicostratus and Aristosthenes were ferried across the Pelusiac mouth of the Nile by ship, boarding on the eastern side, and sailing down to disembark on the west bank. They couldn't just sail into the city, but they could land in the fishing village just outside the walls. The Egyptian mercenaries marched out of their barracks to counter this, but they had been tricked. Only Nicostratus and his Greeks, about 5,000 soldiers, disembarked in the initial attack. The Egyptian garrison was 7,000 strong and thought they'd have an easy fight, only for the elite Persian troops to come out of the ships and outflank them, killing the Egyptian mercenary commander and throwing their formation into disarray. Diodorus attributes this chaos to Naktorheb's penchant for managing his troops, and thinking too highly of himself after repelling Artaxerxes the first time. This seems a bit unlikely, given that the pharaoh had almost 20 years of experience in command, but anything's possible. Either way, the massive defeat on the western side of the Pelusiac mouth spooked Naktorheb. Thinking this was just the prelude to the whole Persian army crossing the river and circumventing Pelusium entirely, the pharaoh withdrew most of his forces to back up more important cities like Memphis in the interior. Ironically, this action is what actually allowed the main Persian force to cross at all. With the Egyptian fleet headed south, Lacrates and Rosakes rushed in with work crews and siege engines, mostly towers and ladders to scale the walls and battering rams at the gates. The work crews diverted a canal or moat of some kind away from the city and filled the empty ditch to give the siege engines direct access to the fortifications. By that afternoon, the Persians had breached the outer wall and taken control of a large swath of the eastern fortifications, but not the city itself. Instead, the Egyptian garrison that remained behind reinforced the walls they still controlled, preventing the Persians from descending into the city, and staged a running battle along the parapets that lasted for several days. Only after the defenders got word that the pharaoh had reached Memphis did they agree to negotiate their own surrender. Diodorus attributes this to fear and loss of faith that the pharaoh had abandoned them, but more realistically, it sounds like an intentional delaying tactic, one which bought time for Noctorheb to prepare further south. Lacrates of Thebes accepted the surrender from the Greeks on the Egyptian side in exchange for safe passage back to Greece, while Bagoas led the Persian regular army in to occupy the city. Bagoas's men stopped the Egyptian Greeks during the evacuation and confiscated anything of value. True to the long history of Achaemenid Greek mercenaries, this led to Lacrates ordering his men to defend the defeated Greeks 
and skirmishing in the streets between the pro-Persian Greeks and the Persian regulars. Bagoas went to the king for help, but Artaxerxes just chided him for violating the oaths of his fellow commanders when accepting the city's surrender, and then had the officers beneath Bagoas who had done the actual looting executed. This was, once again, a smart move. Too much of the Persian army was composed of Greek mercenaries to anger them all, and if Persia was going to rule Egypt again, they had to look at least kind of appealing to the local populace. Most importantly, though, the Egyptians themselves were even more reliant on Greek mercenaries than the Persians, and if Artaxerxes could portray a friendly image to the mercenaries on Egypt's side, well then they might just view him as the better option and turn over the Nile without a fight. So Artaxerxes offered clemency to the native Egyptian soldiers as well, for most of the same reason, allowing them to leave Pelusium and go to their homes unhindered, where they would deliver the news of Artaxerxes' invasion policy, peace, and free passage home in exchange for surrender. The alternative was the same wrath that he had unleashed on Sidon and Egypt's mercenary forces began deserting in droves, or else openly clashing with the Egyptian militia in their attempts to desert. The Persian army began moving southwest across the delta, occupying territory and capturing cities as they went without much issue. The three divisions of the army gradually fanned out over the more poorly defended areas to cover more ground. Mentor and Bagoas encamped near the city of Bubastis, in the southeastern Nile Delta, where one of these mercenary revolts suddenly took effect. The Greek mercenaries defending Bubastis sent envoys to the Persian camp, offering to deliver the city in exchange for clemency. According to Diodorus, Mentor worked out a scheme to both ensure favorable terms for the surrendering mercenaries and personal glory. He sent envoys of his own after the Egyptian mercenaries and warned them that Bagoas was not to be trusted. The Egyptian side mercenaries returned to the city and staged a coup, forcing the native Egyptians into one quarter of the city as prisoners before opening the gates. Bagoas and some of his Persian troops came in, only for the mercenaries to slam the gate shut, massacre the guards, and capture the eunuch himself. Then they staged a mock negotiation with Mentor, who miraculously secured favorable terms for the mercenaries so they could evacuate in peace, but also rescued Bagoas from their clutches. As a result, he was acclaimed as a great negotiator by Artaxerxes, and Bagoas was himself indebted to the Rhodian freelancer, unaware that Mentor had arranged the whole affair. From there all three of the Persian armies were able to progress with little violence as Egypt's mercenaries turned against their employers more and more often. As more cities fell, even the local Egyptians followed suit. Before long, Artaxerxes and his whole host reconvened and approached Memphis together, with the full Persian war fleet sailing down the Nile to besiege the White Walls. Realistically, Noctorheb still had a chance. 
He had probably lost the delta for the time being, but if he relocated his government to Egyptian Thebes further south and kept Memphis well-supplied and fortified, Artaxerxes would still struggle to take the infamously well-defended city. The last time an army besieged Memphis while Upper Egypt supported the city was in 454 BCE, when Memphis was still in Persian hands and the attackers were Athenians and Egyptian rebels. That siege lasted for four years and only broke because the Persians were able to send a second army down from the north. In 342, though, Noctorheb blinked. The pharaoh abandoned his throne and his country, fleeing south into exile in Nubia, leaving the rest of Egypt open to Persian reoccupation. Artaxerxes did not allow his men to wantonly sack the country. He still needed to placate the Egyptian populace, but a 60-year rebellion could not go unpunished. Artaxerxes tore down the walls and fortifications that dotted the Nile Delta and had frustrated Persian attempts to retake it for decades. He directed a controlled program of looting from Egyptian temples, confiscating gold, silver, sacred ritual tools, and even the temple archives. He used these plundered funds to pay out generous bonuses to his mercenaries, before providing them with direct passage to their home cities from Egypt, rather than forcing them to march overland. Of the mercenaries, Mentor of Rhodes received the highest honor of them all. He was made an official member of the king's court and Artaxerxes III's personal entourage. He received 100 talents of silver, 3 tons of precious metal, and numerous pieces of the best furniture and finery the empire had to offer. To top it all off, Mentor was named Satrap of the Asiatic Coast, in Diodorus's words. Once again, Artaxerxes seems to have carved out ever smaller satrapies in order to manage the prospect of rebellion. Mentor was tasked with governing the coastline from Lycia all the way down to Gaza, essentially making him governor of Phoenicia and the military commander who could act as a first responder to any rebellion on the western seaboard. Most importantly to Mentor, this sort of promotion always came with one, no-strings-attached boon from the king. So Mentor asked Artaxerxes to pardon his family, allowing his brother Memnon, Memnon's wife, and her brother, the disgraced rebel satrap Artabazus, to return to Persian territory under Mentor's protection. Artaxerxes acceded to this, and the family sailed back, departing from the court of Philip II in Macedon, along with Memnon's 21 children. That poor mother. There were 11 sons and 10 daughters, most of whom were adults or nearing adulthood, and hadn't seen Uncle Mentor since they were children. Mentor was immediately enamored with his nieces and nephews and arranged prestigious marriages for them all and military commands for the boys. Along with their uncle, they all found themselves pretty busy over the next few years. I don't talk about it much because the ancient historians themselves don't either, 
But individual cities and minor districts rebelled over taxes and border disputes all the time. They only really come up when they got involved in larger disputes. To pull a Star Wars reference, these were more like aggressive negotiations than true rebellions. Individual Greek tyrants weren't actually going to secede, but they could fight for more favorable treatment. However, that meant putting a person in charge who was a competent negotiator. That's where Mentor came in. Soon after taking control of the West Coast, Mentor had to deal with an uprising in the Aeolian city of Atarnius, up in northern Anatolia. He did his duty and besieged Atarnian fortresses, but primarily he negotiated with Hermias, the local tyrant. Hermias just wanted some basic reassessments, and Mentor promised to intercede with the king, but he required Hermias's personal seal on the letters. When Hermias came out with his bodyguard to mark the letters in person, Mentor just had him arrested, and he used the tyrant's signet ring to sign letters to all of Hermias's subordinates, making them surrender. Mentor and his nephews went on to spend most of the next decade doing similar business. Finally, we return to Caria for one last significant event in the Western Empire before wrapping up. Since her brother-husband's death in 344, Queen Ada had governed her satrapy peaceably enough. She had done her duty and sent her subjects off with the great army to Egypt, continued her family's spree of building projects, and become a major patron of some of the great oracles and temples of the Aegean, including the Greek oracle of Apollo at Delphi a city we will talk a lot more about in an upcoming episode. However, Ada found herself at odds with her younger brother, the last surviving son of Hecatomnus. This was Pixodarus. He was the only one of his siblings to marry outside the family, specifically to a widowed Persian noblewoman, presumably because he had run out of sisters. Regardless, Pixodaros got the idea that as the husband of a Persian and as a man, he ought to be ruling Caria rather than his sister. He staged a coup in 340 BCE, chasing Ada and her loyalists out of Halicarnassus and seizing control of Caria for himself. Neither Artaxerxes nor any of the neighboring satraps intervened. Pixodaros was still pro-Achaemenid, and frankly, being married into the Persian nobility only made him more appealing. This was an internal Carian affair, and it would be handled as such. However, Ada was not about to give up so easily. She and a large band of loyalists held up in the city of Alinda, a riverside fortress near the coast where they were besieged by Pixodarus, and then by his son-in-law and successor, Arontabates, for the next ten years. What broke the siege? Well, that is a much bigger story for another time. In the next episode, we take a step back and look at an important aspect of the Persian Empire that I have neglected for far too long. Until then, though... 
If you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.